Greetings, my good people. How we're feeling? How we're doing? We're getting our week off to a good start. Feeling well, positive, upbeat. I hope that's the case as we endure not only just another week and another day, but also another J Reels podcast as I deliver everything that's going on in the world of sports. I am your host, J Reels. This is your first time tuning in. Thank you very much and welcome aboard as I talk to you about what's going on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the hardwood, gridiron, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, directed, and in full effect here in New York City on a Monday, October the 22nd in the year of our Lord, 2018. Glad to join me as I go through the sports landscape and get into everything that's happening when it comes to Game 1 of the World Series, which will kick off tomorrow night. The Fall Classic is set between the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Boston Red Sox. I'll get into the major upset in college football, which kind of upends the top five in the college football rankings, with Ohio State getting blasted by Purdue. Also, the first week in the NBA, including the brawl that took place last night, or two nights ago, was it two nights? Yes, in uh, Los Angeles between the Rockets and Lakers. Bunch of suspensions. You'll get uh, my feelings on that. And also the NHL before we a uh, bit ado, but we'd be remiss to not start off our program with the NFL and everything that happened in week seven. And with the Giants playing a Monday night, and I did say in my earlier podcast that I would wait till the day after, especially when it comes to the locals with Monday night, but sorry, Giant fans, with the way your season has gone and with the way they've been playing, they certainly don't warrant a Tuesday podcast. So with that said, we'll catch up with them on the next podcast, and we'll squeeze in both games where the Falcons will host the uh, G-Men as the Falcons try to get back into the mix in the NFC and the Giants are just trying to get any respectability in the NFC considering that they've uh, pretty much fallen flat out of their face for this 2018 season. But we'll kick off with the Jets and what happened there yesterday in MetLife. You knew that this was going to be a step up in class. This wasn't going to be the Denver Broncos of the world or the Indianapolis Colts. Colts, excuse me. With the Vikings coming in, coming into the season, we all know legitimate Super Bowl contending team. Little underlying story with Kirk Cousins, who spurned the Jets in the offseason going to Minnesota, which I thought worked well for the Jets. Uh, as you've heard this podcast in the beginning, I didn't want the Jets to sign Kirk Cousins. I thought it was just going to be too much money. And Cousins, although he's a good player, but he's not a great player. But the Jets certainly hung on for a half. They uh, had a 10-7 trailing at the half. And before you know it, they actually extended the lead there to 20-7. And to me, this was the turning point of the game where the Jets got the kickoff. Andre Roberts had a great return past midfield. You're thinking the Jets maybe, hey, if they can move the ball, punch us into the end zone, make it a one-score game, more so from the touchdown. If they would have kicked the field goal, uh, of course, which they ended up doing at 20-10. But... Knowing that they had that third and 10 at around their 40-yard line and the tight end Tomlinson drops the ball. I mean, it was just a perfect pass. And that was one of the follies of yesterday's Jet game, if you're looking at it from a Jet fan's perspective, is that a lot of drop passes. I know everybody's going to look at Donald throwing the three picks. Two of them weren't his fault. And the last one was pretty much in garbage time. But to me, that was the play of the game because if they would have converted down the first down, who knows? Do they end up kicking a field goal there? Eh, Possibly because the Jet offense, only for a couple of plays, were not really able to move the ball on this Viking defense. But with that juncture, to me, that was the turning point because at 20-7, to them kicking a field goal 20-10, to the Jets were certainly going to be going upstream without a uh, paddle. And 
the way things had shaken down, the Vikings then just took off. So they played with them for a half, hung tight, and you kind of thought for a minute there that when you have a team that's laying in the weeds, that's hanging around like the Jets, and we know the Vikings are a better team personnel-wise, but you thought there for a second that if they somehow, way, would have punched it into the end zone and made it a 20-14 to 14 game, that the Jets certainly would have had a shot, provided that their defense would have held up, and the defense certainly did not play well there in the second half. And you knew that the Jets, despite the fact that the other two games at home and the way they played, they would have to play a near-perfect game against a very good defense offensively and then defensively make the stops. And that's not to say that the Vikings are gangbusters by any stretch on the offensive side of the ball. I mean, they do have personnel. We know Adam Thielen, he's been a beast this year. He's already on his way to being all pro. And their running game, Latavius Murray, who's a guy who's a, you know, is a good back. You know, not going to be confused with the Robert Smiths of Vikings past, but at the same time, this is a team where the Jets certainly was a litmus test going into this game. And to be kind, I would say you give them a D. This was a step in class for them. They knew this was going to be a tough game to win, even at home. And even with the way the conditions were, it was very windy in the tri-state area. Temperatures were in the upper 40s, but the winds were just whipping around all over the place, as I'm sure you've probably seen throughout the games here in the East Coast in the NFL, which we'll get to in a minute. But when you look ahead for this Jet team, I understand you're going to look at the division and you're going to say to yourself that we had a shot there to try to win a game, to keep pace with New England, or even Miami for that matter, since you lost to them earlier this year. But as I've said time and time again on this podcast, you certainly cannot look that far down the road if you're a Jet fan. You cannot look at this team thinking that they're going to be in a hunt for a playoff position come week 10, week 11, week 12, week 13, and so on. As we said, you just want this team to continue to gain momentum, continue to progress. All right, they have three wins in their back pocket. After the first seven games, fine. You were pretty much at the same juncture last year. We all understand how that turned out with only five wins for the whole year. Now, I understand six and ten, you're not going to start – doing cartwheels or backflips and certainly, you know, seven to nine and so on. I mean, you, as a fan, you want them to progress to the point where they're playing meaningful games in December. But I don't think this Jet team is going to have it in them, knowing that they still have to play the Patriots twice. Next week, you have a game where the Jets are obviously going to be on the road considering they've had all these home games here. They're going to go to Chicago, where Chicago has improved and had a heartbreaking loss at home to another AFC Eastern rival, which we'll get into when we go around the league. But if you're the Jets, you have to still look at this process as with the rookie quarterback, with a lot of young players. You know, now that I think about it, another big play in the game was when at 10-7, the kid in the back of the end zone, Brooks, who broke up the play, Terrence Brooks, who made a nice play on the ball, but certainly could have had two hands to Corral the interception, which obviously would have changed the complex of that part of the game. But be that as it may, I think it was a player or two later, that's when Latavius Murray walked into the end zone 17-7 and the Vikings didn't look back. So it's those little things that as a team that's looking to build and is looking to be cohesive with all this young talent that they certainly can't shoot themselves in the foot in these key spots, especially deep in their territory on the defensive end. And 
these are the growing pains that you're going to have to suffer being a Jet fan for another year or two. Well, at least the rest of this year and possibly into next year. You're looking at 2020 to being the year that maybe the Jets can arrive. And not to look into a crystal ball two years down the road, but this is what you're looking at with this team. And who knows who's going to be coaching this team at that stage of this stand on the Lara. But those are questions for another day. We're not going to get into who's top bowl is going to be here or what kind of personnel they're going to bring in, things of that nature. You just got to look into the here and now and with the Jets now going to Soldier Field next week to try to get themselves back, not only in the win column, but also get to 500. And that's all you're looking at if you're a Jet fan. Yes, we want to remain optimistic. Yes, we want it to be a thing where this team could play not even relevant games in December. How about even into November? But I think the schedule is going to be too tall of an order for them to overcome if you're even thinking about being a playoff team, let alone even a fringe playoff team. Because remember, you still have New England twice. You have the Packers coming in later this year. Those, so those are three games that certainly aren't going to be easy. All right, you can look at the two games against Buffalo, but we all know division games on the road are always tricky. And then the rest of the schedule, which I don't have in front of me, but again, those are just a handful of games that you're looking at right now, and you say to yourself, well, these, you know, it's not going to be a cakewalk to eight or nine wins, especially when you already have four losses in the bank. So we'll continue to monitor this Jet season. I'm sure that it's probably been a lot more expected than you ever thought it would be, considering Darnold. And listen, Darnold has not been great in these games. And this isn't a knock him because, hey, he's going to be a fine quarterback and he's a rookie. You know, he's only played seven games in this league. And, yes, he made a couple of throws there, you know, Robbie Anderson. And certainly you're going to look at the future as being awfully bright when it comes to number 14 in green. But at the same time, you know, he certainly hasn't wowed you with his performances on a consistent basis. And that's fine. You know, not everybody's going to walk in here and all of a sudden become, you know, 21 of 28 for – 263 touchdowns and interception. You know, you're going to have those growing pains. Now, yesterday was a tough day for him in the sense because he had a lot of drops, including the one I mentioned earlier with Tomlinson, which to me I think was the biggest play of the game. Because it's still, instead of making it possibly a one-score game, it was a two-score game, and they, again, they certainly didn't have a lot of margin for error. Now, looking forward, you just only hope to see this team continue to play well, and continue to play well for this coach because I'm sure a lot of Jet fans, they want to get rid of this guy. And I can understand to a certain extent because just like with any other coach in the league, but more so with him, between his clock management and, you know, it could be fourth and four with four minutes to go and his team is down by two scores or 11 points. And what is he doing? He's punting the ball instead of trying to go for it there. And I get that a lot of coaches are like that. But here in New York and being a Jet fan, you're going to look at this and it's going to get magnified times 500. But that's all you could hope for with this team, I would think, here on out. And you just take it one game at a time, not to sound cliche. You see what they could do in Chicago next week. You know, I know Trubisky's final numbers look like he was a world beater, but he started off that game like 10 for 25 yesterday against the Patriots. So we'll see how this uh, shakes down as the weeks start to now as we get into almost the halfway point of the NFL season. Even though this week is 
upcoming will be week eight. But a lot of games, a lot of teams have only played six games going on seven. So once you get past week nine, then you're already into the halfway point of the season. And real quick with the Giants tonight, I mean, what is there to discuss other than respectability, other than some pride? Now, this is a game where I think the Giants can score a lot of points, but as we know, they've only scored 30 once in the last, it seems, you know, 20 years. And with the way the offense has been constructed, if you've listened to the podcast in the last three or four weeks, you know, this isn't an offense that's going to light the world on fire. They're not going to take chances. They're not going to take shots down the field. It's almost as if, well, right, well, this this what the defense is going to give us, then this is what we're going to take, and that's it. And it's a lot of Saquon Barkley and not enough Odell Beckham and not enough Sterling Shepard. And granted, we understand the way the protection is on their offensive line, but still, we can't put all the blame on them. You know, Eli's got to make plays. Eli's got to look, take shots downfield. And they're going up against an Atlanta team that's just as desperate. They know things are slipping fast in that NFC South. So pretty much they're looking at a wild card. And they do have the offensive firepower to get back in this mix. As we all know, they're nicked up defensively where that's not going to, they're not going to sustain any productivity from that side of the ball to kind of have the offense, you know, in other words, their offense is going to have to go up 31-10 and then they're going to have to hang on to win these games because that's how bad they are on defense. But going down to Atlanta, and we all know the Falcons play very well indoors and even in that building. I mean, the building's just a year and a half old. But you would think the Giants could do just as much damage considering the offensive firepower they have. I could just see this being a game where it would probably come down to the last drive. You know, because Atlanta can't stop anybody. And the Giants, defensively, who knows? It's hot and cold. We all know they don't have much of a pass rush, so Matt Ryan should have plenty of time to pick this defense apart. You figure it's going to be a lot of Julio Jones. Devontae Freeman's out for the year, so it's going to be a lot of Tevin Coleman. And I could just see this being like a 34-31 type game. And then you're 1-6, and six, and even though the schedule gets better, but you just can't dig yourself this much of a hole and expect to come out of it with roses. And it's a 16-game season. It's not a 25-game season. You always hear those teams that, let's say, start 0-4 or get into a 1-5 start, and next thing you know, it's week 17, and they're 8-7, and seven, and you say to yourself, geez, if they just had three more weeks of the season, they would probably would have made the playoffs. Well, that doesn't count. doesn't work. So that's your little giant preview for tonight's game. Now, the Week 7 schedule, before we trim the fat on the the three games off the top that I see here that I'm just going to breeze right through, it doesn't just when you think the NFL gets wilder and wackier every week, it, it, it just tops it from one week to the next. And it's amazing because a lot of these games are not sexy matchups. They're not games that you're certainly going to be glued to the sets. You're certainly not going to be jumping up and down to say, oh, my God, you know, what's going on in Tampa between the Browns and the Buccaneers, which was one of those games that pretty much went down to the final seconds of the game. But for whatever the reason, that's what's beautiful about this league and about these games because from one week to the next, you just can't predict what the heck's going to happen. So to right off the top, people, 
The Thursday night game, Denver-Arizona, was 28-3, four minutes into the second quarter. He had two t- pick sixes in the game. Josh Rosen, obviously, he's going to have his growing pains, just as we talked about with Sam Donald. And the Broncos roll 45-10 in the desert. The Colts, behind Andrew Luck, who only threw for about, what was it, 100? He didn't even throw for a lot of yards in the game yesterday. Threw for like 150 yards, but had four touchdowns. 37-5 to was your final there with the Bills. It's weird with the Bills. You know, they could play a game in Houston where their defense should have won them the game and only give Houston, give up pretty much 13 points. But then they'll lose 20 to 13 because Nathan Peterman just continues to throw pick sixes as if it's Christmas. And then yesterday they just lay a big egg and granted Derek Anderson was your starting quarterback. So you know things aren't going well in Buffalo when you have a guy like Derek Anderson starting. So that's game number two. And then the third game of the Rams, they just continue to roll. They just trounce all over the 49ers, 39-10 to 10, out in Levi Stadium as they just continue to play well. And again, not any big type of uh, performances. You know, Jared Goff only 202 yards. Gurley, of course, continues to mow him down, more touchdowns. He's on a pace to have like 30 touchdowns this year. But that's the Rams. Rams are having a big season, as we know. And I know a lot of the talk is uh, since they're the last undefeated team in the league, can they run the table and do that? Well, they still have the Chiefs. And that game's in Mexico. I didn't realize that game was in Mexico on a Monday night on the 19th of November. And they, they do have a couple of tough games on the schedule. Most notably, Kansas City. They go to Chicago. If you want to look at that, it's maybe a tough game. Who knows what the weather's going to be like. And they have one other game that I know that uh, could certainly – be dicey to say the least, and it eludes me off the top of my head. But if I think about, oh, they play the Saints. In fact, although they have the Packers coming into their building, but the following week they go to New Orleans, so that's going to be an interesting matchup to see the Saints at five and one going up against the Rams seven and zero. Oh, and I believe the Rams somewhere after that, I believe they have their bye. So we'll segue that to the next game, which would be New Orleans and Baltimore. And talking about the weather playing a factor in these games. Now, granted, you would think that this was December. Here we are in mid to late October. I mean, it is the 22nd. These games took place just yesterday. Where the Saints and Ravens, and a lot of people thought about the high-powered offense and the Saints going up against the Ravens, who only had given up 87 points to, or excuse me, 77 points defensively to teams this year and hadn't given up any touchdowns in the second half. Well, in the fourth quarter, the Saints put up 17 points where the Ravens were up 17-7 to seven at one point. Then it was pretty much the Saints coming back. They took a lead, obviously led late in the game, 24-17. And as the Ravens score a touchdown with about 20-something seconds to go, Justin Tucker, who to me by far is the best kicker in the league, uh, even when Dan Bailey, who's now in Minnesota, when he was on the Cowboys, and I understand he's one of the top, if not the top, field goal percentage kickers of all time, but... If you've watched Justin Tucker, and I do, considering he plays in the same division as the Steelers, the guy is M-O-N-E-Y. I mean, just ring the cash register when it comes to him. Well, to the point where he had executed 245 extra points in his career and had not missed one until yesterday, and this was not because of him. He's kicking that extra point at 24-23, and it's going right down the line. 
I mean, right down Broadway, splitting the uprights down the middle. And what happens? All of a sudden, this gust of wind comes, and it's wide right to the point where you see the video of Justin Tucker just eye, you know, wide-eyed, staring to think to himself, what did I just witness? He was exasperated and incredulous, and I'm sure the Ravens' sideline was just as incredulous and certainly wasn't the fault of Tucker. This is where Mother Nature came into play and had the Saints win a 24-23 game in Baltimore, which put them, the Ravens, at 4-3. and three. And then to fast forward to the Sunday night game where Cincinnati, and this definitely should be a trim the fat, it was 24-7 at the half and 14 nothing to start. The Bengals, they just really couldn't convert. They couldn't really do anything on offense. The defense, as we all know, certainly wasn't able to cut the mustard against the Casey offense. 45 to 10 was your final. The Bengals started off 4 and 1, now 4 and 3, tied with the Ravens for second place in the AFC North because believe it or not, with the Steelers by yesterday, they're actually percentage points ahead of both teams with a 3-2 and 1 record. Who would have thought that would have happened? Uh, as we move along, the game in London featured the Titans and Chargers where it pretty much came down to this. You know, Philip Rivers had another good day in the air. Four and two, Chargers are certainly having a very good season. Tennessee, their offense is from hunger, but they know they're a very good defensive team. They get a touchdown there late, and then they go for two for the victory, which give Vrabel credit for trying to go for it, and he feels as if this team that certainly has not been able to put up any points, let alone win games the last couple of weeks, considering he got shut out by the Ravens last week in particular and given up 11 sacks in the process, going for the win there. My thing is is that I – you like the aggressiveness, but considering that this team has had trouble moving the football all year, and even, right, you would think, but Jay Reels, two yards, they couldn't get two yards, and absolutely right, well, they got stuffed and ended up losing the game. And I could see why. I could see why they want to go for it there. It's trying to put some, instill some confidence in your offense and in your quarterback, and you come up on the losing end of this. It's difficult. This is a team that was 3-1, and one. now they're 3-4 and four in just a weird... AFC South, which is shaking up to be. And let's just go to the next game in the AFC South, which certainly made everybody's head scratch. The Jacksonville Jaguars have hit some hard times. Remember, they were 2-0 and after that demolition of the Patriots in Week 2, and then 3-1, and and since then, they have just fallen flat on their faces. You know, they got waxed in Kansas City, got destroyed in Dallas, and then at home against Houston, a team that started off 0-3, I might add. Houston goes in there, wins 20-7. Blake Bortles gets benched for Cody Kessler. Deshaun Watson was only able to muster 137 yards in the air. And for them to go in there in Jacksonville, despite the fact they had a three-game winning streak, but it was probably the quietest three-game winning streak you probably ever hear of, they go in there, win the game, and then now your first place, AFC South, belongs to the Houston Texans. So talk about having their season turn in a matter of weeks. They started off 0-3, all the Deshaun Watson hype, and he hasn't played well either. I mean, he hasn't been lights out. But with all that pomp and circumstance coming into the season and starting off the way they did, they are now in first place in the AFC South. And Jacksonville, their situation with Bortles is just awful. And Jacksonville's a team that despite their defense – and the defense wasn't bad yesterday. I mean, Jalen Ramsey gave up a couple of big plays to DeAndre Hopkins. 
And we all know about their defense. The thing is, is that their offense, if you're down 3 nothing, you can't really trust that offense to muster up a drive, let alone a scoring drive. Because Bortles, he's as Jekyll and Hyde as anybody in this league. And then you bring in Cody Kessler. I mean, how much can you expect from him? He was a guy, if you remember, he was one of like 20 quarterbacks on the Browns last year. And if you're a Jaguar fan, you have to be scratching your head. Wondering where did the season go, figuring 3-1, and one, you're flying high. And now you're 3-4. and four. You're scuffling to find out what your quarterback, you know, what he's going to do from week to week. Your defense, who has given up big numbers two weeks prior to yesterday. And like I said, you had Deshaun Watson going in there. He only threw for 137 yards. And to make matters worse, you give up 100 yards on the ground to Lamar Miller. So is this defense now become all hype? And then Jalen Ramsey needs to pipe down with his comments, too. I mean, we all know the GQ article pretty much cutting everybody from pillar to post, you know, from Eli to Ben Roethlisberger, et cetera. Well, you know what? He needs to now shut up and just play defense because his team has just been putrid over the course of these last three weeks. Uh, Let's go to Dallas and Washington. That was a game, another crazy ending, where in watching this, when Dak, uh, Dak Prescott got sacked at the goal line, down 13-10, and it was actually a borderline safety, you're thinking to yourself, oh, geez, you know, you'd rather have the safety because then you'd be within one score than to fumble the ball, which he ended up doing, and then it was picked up and recovered in the end zone where the Redskins took a 20-10 lead at the time with about four minutes to go. Well, then Dallas marches down the field, kicks, uh, gets a touchdown, excuse me, And then with all three of their timeouts, the Cowboys, and this is now sub-two-minute warning. What does the Redskins do? All right, they run two plays, so it's now third and long. Now Alex Smith gets out of the pocket. He's running, and instead of sliding inbounds, he runs out of bounds and stops the clock. So now Dallas actually has some time on the clock to move the ball. They had a couple of big plays, and now they're ready to kick a 47-yard field goal, which now here's where the controversy begins because they're – uh, their snapper, L.P. Latasur, he had the ball lined up in a certain way where he's ready to snap it, and they called it. I didn't even remember, forgot what the call was. I don't know if it was a false start or whatever it was. So now they had to push it five yards back. Now they're ready to line up for a field goal. Brett Maher from 52, and what does he do? Has enough distance, and he clanks the left upright, and the Cowboys lose 20-17. That's a brutal loss. And the Redskins... Talk about improbable. They are tops in the NFC East at 4-2. and two. Because what the Eagles did early in the day, had a 17-0 lead against Carolina. I know a lot of the talk was the pregame stuff between Malcolm Jenkins and Eric Reed. We know Eric Reed with former Niner safety. Obviously was big with the you know, kneeling when Colin Kaepernick was at the helm of the Niners back a couple of years ago. And then now you had them confronted not only in the pregame, but during the coin toss where you had all these words thrown back and forth. And a lot of it has to do with the stuff that's off the field, with everything that's gone on with the coalition, with the NFL, with whatever it was, $100 million that they want to put forth to as far as getting things together you know, in various communities and trying to put up a lot of references towards racial equality and the social injustice and everything of that uh, nature. But what happened? Eric Reed calls Malcolm Jenkins a sellout. Malcolm Jenkins takes the high road. So that was just a an underlying story to the actual game itself. But how can the Eagles 
And I don't want to hear Super Bowl hangover. I don't want to hear well, I don't, well, no excuses. You have a 17-0 lead in the fourth quarter and you lose that game. I mean, that is just as bad as it gets. As bad as it gets. To the point where you had even a minute and change left to go. The Panthers scored that touchdown with about a minute 55 to go in the game. And they still had time. And the Eagles were trying to march down the field and just were not able to execute. And just a bad loss considering that they had the Thursday night game prior to against the Giants. So they you know, had 10 days off, a lot of time to prepare. Certainly looked like they had this game in the back pocket. And you got to wonder, you know, what's going on with the Eagles? And th- that's a game they should have won. I mean, they had no business losing that game. And the Panthers, you know, they keep pace with the Saints in the NFC South. A game I probably should have trimmed the fat earlier, Detroit and Miami. Carry on Johnson had a big game, 158 yards on the ground. Detroit certainly trying to make a play there in the NFC North with the Bears, Vikings, and Packers. And, uh, you know, they fared well down in South Florida. You know, Miami, I, they got off to that 3-0 and start, but they certainly were, they're fraud 3-0. and I mean, let's face it. And right now, what are they, 4-3? and So they've lost three of the last four games. Uh, New England and Chicago, that was another bizarre, crazy game where you had a Punt return block for a touchdown. You had a kickoff return for a touchdown, which is huge whenever you get any type of special teams touchdowns when it comes to the Patriots because, as we all know, the Patriots, even despite the fact that they don't have a lot of offensive firepower as far as names are concerned, you know, Gronk is not the same player. Julian Edelman, of course, just getting back from suspension. But they, as we all know, are very resourceful. But pretty much what it came down to was the final play of the game where Trubisky throws his Hail Mary and it gets caught at the one-yard line by, I believe it was Kevin White, catches it, and he's about to turn to extend his arms to cross the plane of the goal line, but you had Deron Harmon just stop him there, and then a gang of white shirts just surround him, and he gets tackled as they go for the tying score. Now, of course, the extra point would have, is everything there, because even at 38-37, you can't guarantee that the game would have been tied, but it certainly would have been thrilling if that Hail Mary did get pulled off, but that wasn't the case as the Bears lose 38-31 at Soldier Field to the Patriots. Uh, Another crazy ending, as I mentioned at the top, with the Browns and Buccaneers. Now, the Browns, again, they were about to go down to the wire. In regulation, the score tied 23 up. The kicker for Tampa, Chandler Canizaro, misses on a 40-some-odd, I think it was like a 42-yard field goal, so it was pretty much a chip shot. But then redeems in overtime by kicking a 59-yarder with a minute 55 to go in overtime. And the Browns play all these overtime games. In fact, and this has to be a record, I would think, there have been at least one overtime game in the NFL over the first seven weeks of the season. Uh, have you ever heard of such a thing? And what's amazing is like they changed the rule for overtime from 15 minutes to 10 minutes, and it seems like there's a game every week where there's like two minutes to go in the, in, in the overtime where you feel like there's going to be another tie. And the Browns, I think, have played in half of those games at least, which is amazing. But the Browns, I tell you, just a tough afternoon for them. Uh, they're going to be a force to be reckoned with in a couple of years. I, they really are. If they somehow, some way, with John Dorsey at the top there, continue to procure talent, get people to buy. And listen, we all know it's Cleveland, so you're not going to have a ton of free agents and players that want to just go run there. Now, granted that Jarvis – Landry was there on a trade, but he's trying to change that whole culture of the whole Cleveland losing mentality 
And give them credit. They've certainly played very well. And they've been in just about all these games except the game last week against the Chargers. But another excruciating loss for that team as they lose uh, 26-23 to the Buccaneers. All right, we talked about Cincinnati, Kansas City. I think we've gone through all the games. New Orleans, Baltimore, Houston, Jacksonville. Uh, yeah, that pretty much does it. Your buys this past week were Green Bay, Oakland, Pittsburgh, Seattle. And we'll, to look ahead, uh, the Thursday night game, just go to sleep. Miami, Houston. You got Philly, Jacksonville, and London. I believe it's the final London game. Talked about Bears and Jets, Soldier Field. Yeah, you don't really have a good slew of games here this week. You know, Baltimore, Carolina, maybe. Of course, you have Green Bay, L.A., the Rams, that is. New Orleans, Minnesota is your Sunday night game in Minnesota, so that's going to be the Minneapolis miracle. Uh, you're going to see a million highlights about that because we all know that game last year in the postseason with Stephon Diggs uh, with that miraculous touchdown there late in the game. Your Monday night game is New England and Buffalo. So, yes, not a lot of sexy games at all this week. I mean, you have a lot of boards. Look, San Francisco, Arizona, Indy. At Oakland, Denver, KC, Seattle, Detroit, Tampa, Cincinnati. Your buys are Atlanta, Dallas, Tennessee, and the Los Angeles Chargers. And that's good. You're week eight. And uh, one other note, NFL-wise, oh, it's a two. The situation with the Le'Veon Bell, I tried to extend this as long as I can uh, as I'm recording this now uh, Monday early afternoon. A lot of reports that Bell was going to come back the Monday after their bye. Uh, as of right now, that has not been the case. There's also been reports that despite the fact that the Steelers are not looking to trade Le'Veon Bell, there have been rumblings in Bell's camp that he's waiting to report after Halloween because the trade deadline is the 31st. And, of course, if he were to come back, the Steelers still have an opportunity to trade him. But he was thinking that he would come back after the trade deadline Start, which would actually be perfect timing because they'll play the Ravens that week. But, of course, we don't know how sharp he's going to be, and he's certainly not in game shape. But the point of the matter is is that he's looking to go past the trade deadline and into that following game against the Ravens to possibly report and then take his opportunity to see what he could do for the rest of this year to get that big contract for next year. I get that it's a brotherhood with the players you've – I'm sure have seen some of the reports with the players said that, hey, we'd welcome Le'Veon with open arms and that even Roethlisberger last week intimated that, well, when Le'Veon comes back and he had to backtrack to say, well, hey, that's just based on what I've heard from you guys. If you're the Steelers and you also got to look at James Conner, he's been productive. He's not Le'Veon Bell. We know that. But he certainly has been productive. If you're the Steelers, I, I wouldn't even contact him. If he walks into the building, whether it be five minutes from now, next Monday, November 1st, whenever he walks in and he's ready to sign that tender, I don't know if the – not knowing all the rules and stipulations when it comes to that, do, do the Steelers have to slide that contract over to him for him to sign? Or can they just say, oh, no, we, we're just not going to offer it to you? I mean, the offer is there. I guess he would have to whenever he's ready to come and sign it, whether – like I said, whether it's right, it's happening right now or it's going to happen an hour from now, whatever. Bottom line is I think he would, whenever he reports, that's when he has to sign because the Steelers have extended it. If they didn't extend that offer, then obviously there's no way for him that he would even remotely show up. But I just don't, I don't know what that's going to mean for the Steelers. 
we all know what it's going to mean for Le'Veon, that he's going to be ready to play, and he's going to be ready to play out this year and hopefully put up a lot of big numbers in the time that he's going to play. But, yeah, I just don't I, – I don't know how to, how it's going to be accepted in that locker room. I know they're probably going to turn a blind eye. I know they're probably going to look at it like, ah, hey, you know, it's, it's Le'Veon. He's one of our brothers. I get that. But I'm sure that they're entrenched to have a guy like James Conner. We all know his story off the field, but – how I look at it is, is that, you know, Le'Veon just didn't even come back. But I could see that this soap opera certainly hasn't finished and you want it to end at some point. Because could you imagine this thing lingering on and lingering on and then, you know, he's going to come back, whatever, week 10, week 15. I, when does it stop? I mean, I understand he does have a, a deadline. I believe he has to be in by week 10 because then after that, that's it. So he pretty much has about two to three weeks to report. If not, then he's going to be a free agent and say la vie. So we'll uh, certainly keep our eyes glued to that, especially myself as the Steelers, believe it or not, in first place. I, I still can't believe it. But uh, So that's all the football stuff. As far as the NFL is concerned, college, the big story was Purdue just annihilating Ohio State at home there on Saturday night, 49-20, to 20, which certainly puts a tremendous wrinkle in Ohio State's national title hopes. We all know that this – from one week to the next, I mean, it just flip-flops. You know, you have one of those top four teams lose, then any one of these teams can just jump back, you know, right back in. I mean, just look at, look at LSU. We all know LSU earlier, just what, three weeks ago, they got lambasted by Florida, and with the way things have shake, you know, shook down there in uh, college football, guess what? LSU is now ranked number four in the country. So if the – and we also understand the FBS points and all that other stuff, but – if the college football season ended today, LSU would be playing in a semifinal for a national title game. Where three weeks ago, you figure, oh, they're, they're done. Forget about it. Now, of course, you have Bama, you have Clemson, you have Notre Dame moving up to the number three, followed by LSU. And Ohio State drops all the way down to 11. And then you have a big game coming up this week in college football where you have Florida and Georgia going at it. Florida is nine, Georgia seven. And remember, Georgia was actually in that top four mix earlier this uh, college football season as well. So you pretty much the loser of that game is certainly not going to have any shot. And still, whoever wins that game, they're going to need help just to get back up into the top four. But we all know the loser of that game is certainly not going to have a shot for a national title. They are 3.30 Saturday down in Georgia. And other games of note, Iowa and Penn State. Uh, then you have Washington State, Stanford, Pac-12 matchup, and then Notre Dame is playing Navy in San Diego. And Notre Dame Navy games, not of recent memory, but within the last five years or so, Navy has certainly given them a run for their money. So, you would not be surprised. Not be surprised if you look at a score somewhere and it's seventeen fourteen, Notre Dame third quarter, and you're thinking to yourself, "Hey, could this be a game where Notre Dame gets picked off?" It's quite possible. So, uh, certainly, we'll we'll see how that unfolds come Saturday as the college football season now gets later into its season. I remember there's just, what, another month after this coming week of games because once you get right into the Thanksgiving weekend, that's it. Then you have your bowl games in December, and then we'll find out more or less after that first Saturday in November with the whole FBS standings and where those top four teams lie as far as potential matchups there for a national title game that you'll get in the early part of next year. And with all that being said, we actually have a World Series matchup 
that's going to take place starting tomorrow night at Fenway Park between the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Boston Red Sox. Last time these two teams played were, uh, what was it, 102 years ago when the Brooklyn, I believe there was Brooklyn Dodgers back then. Uh, you know, sometimes with these names, remember the Yankees were the Highlanders at one point. But uh, a Brooklyn-Boston matchup, uh, or Dodger, I should say, uh, Red Sox matchup has not happened in over 100 and, uh, years, 102 to be exact. So now you're going to have them face off against one another, game one at Fenway tomorrow. The way these teams got here, both different courses. Red Sox, surprisingly, after losing game one, they swept the Astros. I know you had some controversy in that game five with the Mookie Betts play, which I thought with Cowboy Country Joe West making that call, I thought Mookie had a beat on it and he would have caught the ball. That's all there is to it. I mean, I could see if it was a thing where Mookie was maybe five feet from the ball and that happened. I mean, that would have been a home run regardless, but real gutsy call. And it was in the first inning of the game. I understand people are going to look at it. It's like, oh, those are the determining runs there that could have been extended to a sixth game. But at the first inning, you're not thinking that. And granted that, yes, I understand that it doesn't matter was it the first inning or the third inning or the fourth inning. But again, if that was the ninth inning, then you'd really have a controversy. But be that as it may, you know, the Red Sox are certainly resourceful in the series. And even with Kimbrell, again, he's just a walking coronary with that game four where Ben Attendee saves his bacon on that diving catch there at 8-6 on Alex Bregman and Bregman who had just a rough series, especially those last few games. And the Red Sox, what could you say? David Price and what he did in game five. Now they go on 108 wins, dispose of the Yankees in four, the defending champs in five. And you think to yourself, hey, if they beat 200-win teams this year, what about the Dodgers? I mean, they're going to probably just make easy work out of them well the Dodgers this is their second year in a row going back to the series we all know what happened last year losing in seven to the Astros they had just a wild and crazy series themselves between Machado kicking Aguilar there at first base in that game four and they won that crazy game four in 13 innings and yeah Machado I don't know what's going on with them I don't know that gamesmanship or he's just trying to get some sort of psychological advantage to the other team I mean he just needs to pipe down he's got to just chill out with that and he's going to be public enemy number one going up into Fenway considering what happened last year early in the season against the Red Sox when in Baltimore he slid and cleated Dustin Pedroia. I'm sure you're going to see a lot of highlights and a lot of storylines about that in the next couple of days. You know, Then, of course, behind Kershaw in a game five and what he did. All right, Brewers blitzkrieged him in that first inning 4 nothing in game six. And then game seven, it was Bellinger who ended up being the National League Championship Series MVP with the two-run homer after Yelich hits the home run in the first inning. And that, to me, that was the key. Because anytime, especially on a Game 7 on the road, when the home team gets that first run or the first blood, whatever it is, even if it was 3 nothing, if you get the strike back in that top half of the next inning, you kind of get the momentum back on your side. And the quicker you do that, the better. Because... When you look at that game, after Yelich hits the home run and then Bellinger gets his home run, to me, not to say that that was a play of the game, or we all know the Puig home run has just sealed it, but whenever you have that team bounce back in the top of the inning, it certainly changed the complex of the whole game. And with the way that game shook down and the way Council, we all know he's had some strange calls in the series, whether it's pulling Wade Miley after one inning or one batter, I should say, in game five. I mean, and that's all you see with all, all these managers. You know, you see a, a million pitchers in these games, which just it just boils you to tears, and it sets the game back 
Uh, I can't even say it sets the game back 50 years because 50 years ago, you'd have the starters pitching all nine innings. So if you want to say it sets the games back uh, one year to 2017, that's exactly what it does. But if you're the Dodgers and now you come out of this NLCS and now you come into the series against the Red Sox and Chris Sale will start tomorrow. We don't know who the starting pitcher is for the Dodgers. If it's not going to be Kershaw tomorrow, it's going to be him for game two on Wednesday night. Walker Bueller, remember, he just pitched game seven, so you're not going to see him until he's in L.A. But what do you do if you're Dave Roberts? And there's another storyline there, Dave Roberts coming back to Boston. But what do you do? Do you pitch Rich Hill, who had an inning relief the other night? Is it going to be a bullpen by committee game? And then you just hope for Kershaw to bring you back to L.A.? you know, with seven innings or eight innings or whatever, how far he can go. Because you're going to have Kershaw and Bueller back-to-back. So this game, you got a piecemeal against Chris Sale. And the Red Sox, I'm sure they're going to have it lined up. Probably Price game two, Ivaldi game three, and then Porcello game four. And Ivaldi, I would put him on the road because he's pitched phenomenal on the road in these postseason games, obviously in New York and in Houston. So why would Alex Cora differentiate at this point? And how I look at this series, and with the other fascinating thing before I even look at the series, the other fascinating thing is is that now J.D. Martinez, who is your DH with the three middle games in L.A., there's even talk of maybe Mookie Betts playing second base, which means no Ian Kinsler, which I'm sure it's not going to be that much of a loss. But at the same time, to have Martinez out in right field to go along with Ben Attendi and Bradley, <clears throat> excuse me, you certainly add that firepower. He's just like Cora said in the in his press conference that Martinez is playing every game. So you're going to have him obviously in the lineup. There's no way he's going to come off the bench, which would have been, I mean, please. I mean, that's a no-brainer. He's certainly not going on a limb making that projection. So you have that. How I look at it, I don't, I'm not even going to just talk about how the way the Red Sox have performed this postseason, 108 wins. I mean, that's the easy way to go. To me, I just think, as gutty and gritty as the Dodgers have been, I just think that the Red Sox have been that and then some. Whether it's Kimbrell just dancing on the Grim Reapers, you know, sword or whatever you want to call it. Between that, defensively, I think they're a little bit better. Bullpens. I mean, the bullpens at this point, everybody's tired, everybody's gassed. You know, you're either going to have a great performance one day or a bad one the next. But I just think that their starting pitching is going to be a little bit more consistent. And we understand this isn't the World Series of yesteryear where you're going to have your pitchers go seven, eight, nine innings. But I just think Sale, Price, Ovaldi, Porcello is a lot better than Kershaw, Bueller. And if you want to throw Hinjuru and a mix of Rich Hill and whomever else after that, then you know, be my guest. But I would think the Red Sox, this is a series I think they'll win in six games. I just think they're going to be that much more resourceful. I think they're going to have guys. And granted, we all know the Dodgers, they have a very good lineup. I just don't think they're as good as the Red Sox lineup. 
And I get, you know, Machado, right. People could say, hey, Justin Turner and what, how he's performed. You know, Puig, I understand. He actually had a very, very good game seven. And actually had a good series overall. But to me, just the Killer Bees, Bogarts, Benatendi, even Bradley, Jackie Bradley, who had a very good LCS and was named the American League Championship Series MVP. I just think it's the Red Sox in six. And I don't want to see the Dodgers win anyway. I mean, I'm rooting for the Red Sox, but I just I don't want to see the Dodgers. Uh-uh. And it's interesting because also one last thing before I move on. The other thing I thought about with the Dodgers, I think about they kind of remind me in a certain sense, not the way they play as a team, but look what the, happened to the Royals in 2014. They lost game seven at home. It was much more crushing than the Dodgers. Remember, the, after the Springer Grand Slam last year, the game was over. Whereas, remember that Alex Gordon almost had that inside the park home run to tie the game in the ninth inning, and then Salvador Perez popped up. But remember, they lost a game seven at home and then came back the next year, played in the World Series and beat my beloved Mets. So you kind of get the sense that, hey, is there a little bit of that magic in the air for the Dodgers, considering what, they went, you know, what they've gone through, not only just this season, but also this postseason as well. Because remember, this season, they started with 16 and 26. You know, they made it to first place, as we all know, had to go to game 163 to beat Colorado, and away they went from there. So now... You have uh, the final games here, the baseball season dwindling down, taking place tomorrow night. And a wrap-up here, a couple of quickies. The NHL season, yeah, not over three weeks in, you know, the Rangers are going to be bad. You know, Rangers lose to Calgary last night. They lost in a shootout to the, or in overtime to the Capitals. To, to me, the Rangers are like the Jets. You know, they got a lot of young talent. Remember all these draft picks. We understand they have the goalie there and Lundqvist, who's the elder statesman of the team, but this team's not going to do much. And I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, unlike, it's not like baseball or even the NBA, but if there is going to be a trade deadline, you wonder if the Rangers would trade Lundqvist to a contending team that knows that that's the final piece. So that's something to keep an eye on. Islanders, although they had a great win there in L.A., but certainly a tough road trip for them out west, losing to Anaheim and... San Jose both 4-1 to one in both of those games. And the Devils, you know, lose in Philadelphia, but the Devils have certainly gone off to a good start to their season. And as far as uh, the rest of the league, you know, I see the Vegas Knights, you know, they certainly have hit the skids here, losing three in a row. Well, actually, they've won three in a row because they start off 1-4, and four, so they've actually played a lot better. So my apologies there. It's got to reverse. Toronto off to a good start, so they lead the Eastern Conference in points in this early season. I picked them to go to a final only because it's a virus, but I know – Sure, a lot of people laughed at that, but also picked San Jose to go to a cup final. So that's pretty much it with NHL here early on. And as far as the NBA is concerned, the Knicks have been in all their games. They blew out Atlanta in their opening night, had a 49-point second quarter. They lose a tough game to the Nets in Brooklyn there on Friday with uh, Karis LeVert getting a layup there late. And then they lose to the Celtics where Trey Burke, uh, just a bad foul by Jason Tatum, Trey Burke had a chance to tie the game when he went to the free throw line to shoot three free throws, but he missed the first one, got the second one, and he bricked the last one, and the Celtics were able to hang on there to win 103-101. So they've been competitive, and so have the Nets. Nets had a tough opening night in Detroit, losing there, and then they had just a real rough game in Indiana the night after getting their first victory of the season. So they had to travel to Indiana, and they lose by 20 to the Indiana Pacers. 
But the one story so far early this season was what happened Saturday night in L.A., LeBron James's first home game as a Laker. If you watched the opening night, they lose to Portland there on TNT. So his uh, debut as a Laker was not victorious. But then now you have Chris Paul, James Harden, and Carmelo Anthony come to town. And what happens? Well, the, toward the end of the game, what about, what was it, four minutes to go, James Harden goes for a layup. And Brandon Ingram, for whatever the reason, as Harden is going to the referee, I guess, to discuss the foul or discuss what had happened. And then Ingram just pushes him away. I mean, he did kind of walk. He did walk in front of him, but to the point where he pushed him away. I mean, it was just a. It was well intended that uh, Brandon Ingram was making his presence felt when Harden cut right in front of him, and then what ensued was a bunch of bodies, to the point where Chris Paul and Rajon Rondo were eye to eye and jaw to jaw, and there were reports that Carmelo Anthony said that Rondo had spit at Chris Paul, where Chris Paul had his finger in his face and he snuffed him, and then. Rondo throws a punch and connects, and then Paul throws a punch. And now you have suspensions galore where Brandon Ingram is serving four for his suspension for inciting the whole thing. Rajon Rondo gets three games, and Chris Paul gets two. And we know Rondo's that type of guy. He'll get in people's faces. He doesn't care. I mean, he's thin as a rail, as we all know, but he got in the face of Draymond Green last year, if you remember, in the postseason. And he's the type of guy that Although he's not known for being one of those under-your-skin type players, but it seems that late in his career, he's been that type of guy where he doesn't care. Now, I remember early on when he was with the Celtics, especially that 2009 postseason run. Not that they went far that year, but that first round against the Bulls, which was an epic first round, all those overtime games. Celtics went in seven where he and Derrick Rose went at it, nose-to-nose, jaw-to-jaw, and getting into all types of skirmishes. But now Rondo gets it. And listen, I you know, I'm not a big fan of the Rockets. Chris Paul, if Paul got spit on and, you know, he puts his finger in his face, you know, Paul should know a little bit better. And he should know who she's dealing with, too. I mean, he's dealing with a guy like Rondo where, yeah, Rondo's become a pain in the neck around the league. I'm sure if you did a poll, a lot of players would look at Rondo's the type of guy, eh, I'm not really too fond of him. So that was your big story there on Saturday night. And uh, early in this NBA season, Toronto's off to a 3 0 start as well as the Nuggets as they beat Golden State last night. So those are the two main storylines so far this early season. So Kawhi and Toronto looks like it's a uh, marriage made in heaven for three games. And uh, again, the Nuggets, maybe not to anybody's surprise, they had a very good year last year, but 3-0 and to kick off this early season certainly looks uh, pretty good early on for uh, the Nuggets. All right, so that'll do it for another episode of the j Reels Podcast. I appreciate everybody taking the chance to not only download, but listen to my program, listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports. Please, people, spread the word to everybody out there. If you can, I'd uh, greatly appreciate it. As always, just go to your app on your phone, Podcasts. Just hit that. Type in the j Reels Podcast. Of course, that's J-A-Y-R-E-E-L-Z. Podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify. And when you do that, not only hit subscribe, but please leave a rating, a review. Because again, now all that's going to do is just going to increase the visibility of this program in this vast sports podcast universe. And with that, not only will it increase the visibility, but hopefully it will generate a lot of interest. And of course, that will only generate more guests that come onto the program as the popularity slowly but surely creeps up there in the aforementioned sports podcast universe. You can uh, follow me on any of my social media accounts, whether it's 
JReels on Instagram, JReels1, just a number, on Twitter, and the JReels podcast on Facebook, my Facebook page. You can also send me an email or contact me on any of my social media sites. Hit me up in a DM with any questions, comments, criticism, praise. Also, the JReels podcast at gmail.com. I hope you enjoy the World Series, which will start tomorrow. Continue with uh, anything, everything and anything that's happening in the NFL, NBA, NHL, hardwood, ice, diamond, etc. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Rose Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. Until next time on the J Rose Podcast, on the flip, baby.